Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Be Good, brought to you by the BVNUT Unit, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavioral change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler with the BVNUT Unit, and with me is my colleague, Scott Young. Hi, Scott. Hi, Eric, and thank you. It's really exciting to be joining you for this episode, um, and I'm delighted to have the honor of introducing our guest, Katie Milkman. Uh, Katie is the James G. Dinand Professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and she's also the host of the popular behavioral economics podcast, Choiceology. She's also the co-founder and co-director of the Behavior Change for Good Initiative, which is a research center with the mission of advancing the science of lasting behavior change. And I know we'll be speaking about that today. And somehow, uh, in addition to all this, Katie also manages to compile and send out a newsletter called The Milkman Delivers. Over the course of her career, Katie has worked with and advised dozens of organizations on how to spur positive change, including organizations such as Google, the U.S. Department of Defense, the American Red Cross, Walmart, and Morningstar, among many others. Her new book, How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be, will be released by Penguin Portfolio uh, this coming May, May 4th. Katie, it's really a pleasure to have you join us. So welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, Cathy, thank you again so much for joining us uh, today for this uh, Be Good episode. We are, as Scott just mentioned, very excited to uh, have you join us. I would like uh, to start with uh, a kind of background regarding your background and your career. I think you have a PhD in engineering, more precisely information technology and management from Harvard. Can you tell us about ah, how you came to be interested in a career in behavioral science? I think it's come from microeconomic. Yes, absolutely. Um, thanks for asking. It's kind of a weird, it's a weird winding story. And so many of ours are, I suppose. Um, so I was indeed a PhD student in engineering at Harvard. It was actually a joint PhD program that I was in between computer science and business. And I was required to take a graduate sequence in microeconomic theory. And in that graduate sequence at Harvard in microeconomic theory, we talked about behavioral economics. So I learned about hyperbolic discounting, the fact that people are impulsive and impatient, and that we could model that. And I learned about prospect theory. And I'll just say my head almost exploded when, <laughs> when those concepts were introduced. I was so excited. I had been really turned off from economics as an undergraduate when I studied it because I didn't believe the assumptions that all of the models were based on. And so I actually turned away. I was thinking I'd be an, a major in economics as an undergrad because I loved math and I wanted to solve applied problems. But 
I ended up switching to engineering because I just wanted to study something where the assumptions seemed valid. And I was comfortable making assumptions about the price of gas, the distance between one factory and the next, but not as comfortable making assumptions that humans were perfectly rational and selfish and uh, patient. So when I suddenly learned that there was actually a, a subfield of economics devoted to modeling human imperfections and showing how we could improve decisions, I was just absolutely blown away and thrilled. And um, luckily, I was able to find mentors who were open to an unusual kind of PhD student. I actually think that the quirky background ended up working in my favor and that there were some real benefits um, to having this engineering background in the way I'd been trained to think that have helped my career a lot. So so I'm grateful. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but Herb Simon, who is a Nobel laureate in economics and many think of as sort of the, the first founder of the behavioral economics revolution, even before Kahneman and Tversky, Herb Simon wrote about how uh, people are sort of like computers and that we have bounded memory, bounded um, rationality that we sometimes satisfice rather than optimizing. And I think that some of the insights that came from his lens on the world as a computer scientist uh, really helped advance the, the field. And, and that the way I learned to think as a computer scientist has really helped me understand how we can better model and improve decisions as well. Okay, thanks a lot. So everything comes from uh, Herbert Simon. But could you share about any mentors that had a strong influence on you? Do you have any researcher or the people who have played an influential role in your professional career? Oh my gosh, any? Are you kidding? Where I mean, <laughs> it's hard to know where to start. There's so many wonderful people who've um, made my career possible and, and been incredible mentors. But actually, it's not that hard to know where to start because my graduate um, advisor, uh, Max Bazerman from Harvard Business School really was the most important uh, in helping shape my path when everyone else sort of looked at me askance. <laughs> who is this weird computer science PhD student who wants to talk about psychology and economics? Uh, Max welcomed me into his research lab and introduced me to his former students and his current students and, and encouraged me. And um, I was just so lucky to end up with this incredible mentor who opened so many doors and, and believed in me, even though I had a strange background. He didn't care. He was just excited to talk about ideas and, and eager to work with students who were eager to work with him. Yeah, yeah. Max is uh, amazing. Maybe you know that we have interviewed Max some months ago with Michael Luca about uh, the book, The Power of Experiments, which is also a, a, a great, insightful book. So you were lucky to have uh, Max as a mentor. Any others? Oh, my gosh. Yes. So many others. Uh, I mean, how much time do you have? Um, I started with Max because he's a he's a natural place to start. But let me mention a few other wonderful people who helped make my career possible. Um, David Liebson and the Harvard Econ Department was also a really important mentor. He and Sendel Mullenathan also at the time at the Harvard um, econ department, they taught a course together. Can you imagine? I was so lucky on behavioral economics. Uh, and as a graduate student, I sat in that class um, my second semester just after I discovered the field. And it was absolutely magnificent. They're both incredible scholars and thinkers and have both been collaborators and mentors since. Um, 
I would also call John Bashirs, who's a professor at Harvard Business School and who is a doctoral student at the same time I was, an, an incredibly important mentor to me. He, though we were we were peers, he had a deep knowledge of behavioral economics research from starting really down the path of studying behavioral economics as an undergraduate, and I knew nothing. And he was excited to collaborate with me and taught me so much about the field, about econometrics. Um, he was an amazing mentor, frankly, uh, as well as Kathleen McGinn, who's another professor at Harvard Business School, who took me under her wing. So there were just, and, and that's really, frankly, uh, a, a short list. I should also mention David Parks, who's a computer science professor at Harvard, who was open to this strange path I wanted to, to take um, in blending computer science with business in a very different way than other students had done. And so, um, that, and that, those are just the people in graduate school. I've had so many mentors since from Richard Thaler to Maury Schweitzer um, to Angela Duckworth, who's my partner in crime on so much research, but who I also count as a mentor. Um, I've just, you know, that's what makes this career fun, wonderful, and possible is the other people who teach you what they've learned and show you the way and support you and, and help you get up when you fall down. And um, and I'm just very, very lucky that I've had so many great role models and mentors and collaborators in my career. Yeah, it seems that it was a great environment for the start of uh, uh, your career. Is there one experiment you have conducted or some other have conducted that stands out in influencing your thinking? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yes. <laughs> so let me start by describing an experiment I, I did when I was a junior faculty member at Wharton, but it was something that I'd cooked up actually in graduate school. I just hadn't gotten the funding together and, and figured out actually how to execute. And it's actually based on something I tried as a graduate student. A lot of my research started as something that sort of came from an insight about my own life or, uh, you know, someone I saw. And by the way, I think that's very common in behavioral science to sort of see something in the world um, or in your own life and say, oh, wait, that's unusual. Maybe there's maybe there's an interesting science experiment there and something something I can prove about human nature. But in this case, um, I struggled a lot in graduate school to get myself to the gym. So I was, you know, taking lots of hard classes in computer science and economics and working on research. And um, it was, you know, days were long and I knew it was good for me to exercise ultimately. But I often struggled to find the motivation at the end of those long days, especially in the cold Cambridge winter to get myself to the gym. And on the flip side, I had a, I had a, a hankering to read lowbrow novels. I, you know, I also liked lowbrow TV, like all lowbrow entertainment called to me. And that's what I sort of most wanted to do at the end of a long day uh, was indulge. And so I actually ended up coming up with a solution to keep myself from wasting time on sort of lowbrow entertainment um, when I should have been working on problem sets and, and research and to get myself motivated to go to the gym at the end of the long day. And what I did was I only let myself listen to tempting audiobooks. I actually listened to the whole Harry Potter series this way in graduate school. And um, like most of the Ethan, uh, sorry, most of that most of the Alex Cross novels um, and, and many other series that maybe I shouldn't admit to having listened to, I only let myself listen when I was exercising. And as a result of that, at the end of a long day, I would find myself craving a trip to the gym to find out what happened next in my latest cliffhanger novel. And I wasted a lot less time at home, um, sort of, you know, 
in indulging in trashy entertainment because I'd gotten my fix at the gym. And not only that, but I enjoyed my workout and my novels more combined because time just would fly by at the gym. So I called this, I started calling this temptation bundling. I realized it was sort of a form of pre-commitment or commitment device to motivate myself to exercise and um, simultaneously to prevent an indulgence that I shouldn't be giving into. And I did an experiment testing the efficacy of this um, strategy and other people. When I was an assistant professor, we randomly assigned people to um, three different experimental conditions. Some people were given tempting audio novels of their choice from a menu of novels that people said they found really hard to put down once they started. And they listened to the first 30 minutes of it while they were exercising. And then um, they were told if they wanted to hear what happened next, they'd have to come back to the gym because we'd be holding an iPod with their tempting novels on it in a locked monitored locker that they could only access when exercising. Uh, other people also listened to tempting novels during a workout and were just encouraged to try to only use them at the gym or only listen at the gym. And a third group uh, just did a workout without a tempting novel. They owned iPods. They were given a gift certificate, a gift certificate to Barnes and Noble so they could have bought uh, audiobooks if they'd thought of it. But we, we didn't give them the insight. And we tested to see if this increased exercise. And what we found is that for um, seven weeks, uh, it actually boosted exercise substantially to lock people's um, monitored audiobooks at the gym so they could only access them during a workout. Uh, it increased exercise about 50% initially. And then there was a little bit of a, a decline over time. And then the gym actually closed for Thanksgiving break and everyone went home. They couldn't access the novels and maybe they fit, forgot what they were in the middle of. Who knows? It, the effect didn't last beyond that period. Um, that actually ended up spurring another line of research I've done on, on disruptions and um, fresh starts and how they can um, actually be really beneficial for getting us to start new things. But uh, as my former advisee, Heng Chen Dai of UCLA has shown, they can disrupt positive habits too. Um, but this research was really exciting. We showed that people would even pay to lock an audiobook at the gym and not have access to it um, because they recognize the value in luring themselves to the gym. And, and it was formative for me because I realized um, there's there are opportunities if you sort of think like an engineer to solve problems in behavioral science just the way we would solve problems uh, in computer science. It's sort of there's puzzle pieces to be fit together. And here the puzzle pieces were something that provides delayed gratification, but is hard to do right now. Uh, and so we like postpone and we don't get around to it. You can fit that like a puzzle with that instant gratification of an audio novel or your favorite TV show. And by by fitting those two utility streams together to use nerd speak, all of a sudden you actually solve this problem. And I think if we thought more as behavioral scientists, like engineers, like problem solvers, we can make more progress. And that, um, although that one experiment is just, it was early in my career, I've done a lot of, I think, bigger, more perfect studies since it, it helped me think about how that engineering mindset can be useful in behavioral science and in behavior change. Wow. Th thanks for sharing, Katie. Now, I just jump in. Thanks so much for sharing. That was really interesting. And, and to hear that temptation bundling really started with your personal experience and, and challenge and then expanded from there into the study uh, is, is really fascinating. Um, I just wanted to change the or turn the page a bit and, and ask you a little bit about choiceology. Um, I believe you're now in season five. Um, so I, I assume it's going really well. But I was curious just to step back um, why you, you know, what motivated you to start 
the podcast and to launch it and maybe some general thoughts about your experience with it so far. Sure. Yeah. No, actually, um, at the time of this recording, we're recording um, just a few days before our next season is going to launch, which I'm really excited about. By the time this comes out, we'll be well into that season. Um, it has been a really wonderful journey. I should actually say I I didn't launch Choiceology. So it's a, a podcast brought to you by Charles Schwab. And the, the brains behind the idea were the folks there. And they teamed up with an amazing group called Pacific Content that specializes in creating magnificent brand podcasts on different themes depending on the partner and, and the partner's interests. I actually didn't host the first season of it. Dan Heath hosted the first season and then he was ready to move on to something new. They were looking for a new host. The opportunity came um, to me and I listened to a couple episodes and I just thought, wow, what a powerful way to communicate about the science I love through stories. And I thought, you know, the first season, which is really excellent, didn't go as deep on the science because it wasn't it wasn't hosted by a scientist. It wasn't being created by a scientist. I thought, what if we could take that amazing storytelling that this team can do and combine it with conversations with my favorite behavioral scientists and bring insights to this wide audience they'd already learned to reach? And I, I was really excited about the opportunity because the work I do, I love my research. It's my number one love, but I've always wanted to do it in a way that ensured it actually had a real impact. It wasn't just something I talked about with my few collaborators in, you know, in the ivory tower, that it was that it was work that was changing lives. And um you know, I'd seen how powerful it could be to teach just, you know, my 150 MBA students at Wharton each year, how they could use the insights from behavioral science to go out and, and you know, form startups or change established organizations for the better. And I thought, wow, what if that reach was amplified instead of reaching 150 people? I, I What if I could reach 1.5 million people? What an opportunity. And so I, you know, I jumped at it and it's turned out to be just tremendously fun because each episode I get to pick along with the Schwab team. We sort of agree on what the right topics will be for a season. I get to pick the guests. I interview my friends about the science they've done. I learn new things. I'm I'm learning a lot from, you know, the conversations I have with Danny Kahneman and Richard Thaler and Angela Duckworth and Wendy Wood um, and all the brilliant people I've gotten to bring on the show because I get to go deep with them about a topic that I only know at a surface level often. And, um, and it's really actually, it's not very time consuming either, which is like the magic because there's a, this incredible production team that really does the meat of the work. Mostly I just get to pick a topic, talk to a friend and then record an episode. And so, uh, it's been just a true pleasure and the response to it has been amazing. Um, I use it in my teaching, which has been fun. I, I was actually hesitant to assign too many episodes to my students because I didn't want to overwhelm them with having to listen to me even more. But the feedback I've gotten is that they wish that I had assigned more of the episodes and they've been listening to more of the episodes because it's such a fun way to learn. Um, and, you know, we spend so much of our time learning, especially right now in the pandemic, there's so much time in screens and it's so fun for them to be able to, you know, listen to a podcast and get their insights that way. So it's just been a joy. And and the feedback from listeners has been amazing. I'm so glad that I took the leap. Yeah, that, that's really great to hear. It sounds like it has been wonderful. And, you know, as you mentioned, you've been speaking with so many of the leading people in the field. I was curious whether if you can generalize at all, you know, does anything stand out from the conversations as kind of consistent themes or impressions that you had or 
or maybe there's some individual conversations, something that's really surprising you wanted to share? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I would say a theme is how personal our research is. You know, we talked about that already a little bit, but uh, it's not just me. We all sort of do a bit of me search. I think that's almost a requirement for being passionate is that you see yourself in the problems you study to some degree, and that makes you really have a deep understanding of it. Um, another theme has been the joy that the science brings the, these leaders in the field. When we talk, I can just tell how innately curious they were about these topics that led them to go and run the studies that have now become classics, uh, and how much they still enjoy talking about the, what they found, um, what the adventure was like and discovering it. So I'd say those are the two themes. One, the personal insights that that, pe that for people, behavioral science is often driven by some personal experience. And second, the joy that the scientists um, find in their work. Yeah, thanks. So that really resonates because Eric and I have been on a somewhat parallel journey, you know, speaking with some of these amazing people. And, and I think what strikes you is... Um, is the passion, of course, uh, but also just the curiosity is amazing. You know, people who have done such wonderful work, but a lot of their thinking is about all these new things that they can and should and would love to explore and just are trying to find time to to get to. Um, so that's one thing that struck struck me, at least, in, in speaking with them. Please, because there is another great initiative, uh, Cathy, uh, which is uh, the Behavioral Change for Good initiative. You co-lead this uh, uh, initiative with your colleague, and I think your friend, Professor Angela Duckworth, uh, which I think you launched back in 2017. Can you tell us about the initial idea and objective of the Behavioral Change for Good initiative? Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you pointed out that Angela is both my colleague and friend, because that is, I think that is a theme in my work. I love working with wonderful people. And that's part of what makes science such a joy is to have collaborators who are also friends. Um, yeah, so the original seed of an idea actually came in 2016, when the MacArthur Foundation put out a call for, um, for proposals for a $100 million prize that they would give out to a team that was going to make a dent in a major social problem. And the MacArthur Foundation had never before dipped into its endowment and made an investment, anything like this. And it caused a lot of stir. It caused a lot of excitement. Um, the university where Angela and I work, the University of Pennsylvania, uh, made a big announcement that there would be an internal tournament because the MacArthur Foundation had said they wanted just one submission from any given organization. So Penn was going to hold an internal tournament to find a team that would advance. And they were going to put a lot of resources behind that team. Uh, and so apparently there were something like 45 entrants from the University of Pennsylvania. And Angela and I uh, we're sitting together when this announcement went out as part of work we were doing on on people analytics. We were part of an initiative, um, the Warden People Analytics Initiative, that involved also Adam Grant and Cade Massey. And we'd, we'd been spending a lot of time together talking about how analytics could improve work and improve life outcomes. And Angela and I both were really interested in habit and how could we better understand how habit could be fostered both at work and at home. And Angela's particularly interested in education. I'm really interested in health and in savings decisions. And, and we felt like this was sort of the holy grail. And when this call went out, we thought, 
what an amazing opportunity to try to take a real swing at this huge problem with a lot of resources. Like if we had $100 million that we could put towards advancing the science of understanding what creates lasting change, we could probably do a heck of a lot of good. So we put together, you know, a paragraph summary and got a message back from Penn. Hey, you're a finalist. We really like this idea. Say more. So we fleshed it out into this big proposal. And the proposal was, let's get a dream team of, of all the best scientists, um, the most creative people in the world thinking about behavior change from, from different disciplines, ec economics, sociology, neuroscience, psychology, medicine, computer science. Let's bring them all together on a team. And then let's figure out if we can get a bunch of giant organizational partners on board that would let us unleash the creativity of these minds on major problems related to enduring behavior change. So, um, you know, the Bank of America's, the CVS, uh, the CVS pharmacies, the um, the 24 hour fitness gyms of the world, whole, you know, uh, you name it, a big organization that has access to lots of people making daily decisions that have an impact on their health, their education. We work with a college board. Um, Let's get them involved. And then the goal was to basically uh, match these organizations and the scientists and run big tournaments of experiments. So not just one idea tested to advance the science of behavior change, but with these really large partners, we could launch dozens of studies simultaneously trying to figure out what would create durable change. And so that's what we advanced. Um, that was what we put together for this MacArthur uh, project proposal. We did not win the $100 million, though I think we advanced to the round of 200 and there were thousands of submissions. And then the next round was like 10 and we didn't make that cutoff. But we did, you know, I thought respectively. And that got us attention. We got attention from Freakonomics, uh, which started covering our work and the University of Pennsylvania, which had supported us, said, look, we, we committed to helping you do this work, even if you didn't get the $100 million prize and we're going to help give you some startup funds. And so we kicked off this initiative and have been been at it ever since. And it's frankly going better than I ever imagined. It's been a real adventure, but a lot of fun. Maybe you talk a little about virtual seminars. What is the purpose of this uh, virtual seminar? What is uh, the idea of this? Yeah, well, when um, the world sort of shut down due to COVID and we we realized that there would be a gap in all of our lives, um, at least in academia, we normally have visitors daily, frankly, coming through our campus, talking about their research, sharing in small, intimate groups. And that was gone. That was going to be gone for as long as, you know, we're not sure when it'll be back still. And in, I'd say it was August when Angela and I started talking about launching an online seminar series so we could recapture that magic and bring it to we weren't sure how big of an audience, frankly. We were really just thinking of the scientific team at the Behavior Change for Good Initiative initially, which has now grown to about 150 scientists. We thought, wouldn't it be great if we could use this crummy moment to at least bring this group together more virtually? And why don't we ask a different scientist each week to present to our team and we'll invite everyone. And then we figured, well, if we're going to invite 
this group of 150, it doesn't really cost anything more to just invite the whole world and anyone who wants to sit in and see the conversations with different team scientists and hear about what they're doing can join. And I'll say we've been blown away by the response there. I think there's 5,000 people who've signed up for the seminar series and counting. Um, and we uh, generally have between 600 and 900 people who are watching live and then many more who watch the, the recordings on YouTube later. Um, and, and it's just been really fun. We do short lunch hour. It's actually not even an hour. It's during the lunch hour events in East Coast time every Monday at noon. Angela and I host a guest who presents for about 25 minutes. And then we do 15 minutes of Q&A that we moderate, but the audience submits. And, you know, it's been it's been amazing and really fun. We And we've succeeded, I think, beyond our wildest dreams and bringing more behavioral science to the world. So I'm really glad we did it. And are there some uh, key learnings after, I think, uh, three, four years? Are there some key learnings or insight or outcomes that you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, so. So we've run we've run a lot of studies in the last four years. Um, I think the biggest methodological advance that has come out of the work is that we have. Well, I wouldn't say perfected, but we have uh, we've figured out how to do something we call a mega study, which is instead of running one experiment to test a single hypothesis, we run a, a bunch of experiments simultaneously in one big mega study. So not an A-B test, but an A-B-C all the way to Z and then some test. Um, we did our our first couple of mega studies. One was with a school district in um, Florida, uh, high schools, trying to nudge students to improve their performance in on, um, on their grades. And then also with 24-hour fitness gyms, where we invited people who were members to sign up for a program to help them build better and more lasting habits. Uh, let me talk about the 24-hour fitness gym study for just a minute. Um, we ended up launching an experiment with 54 different conditions um, to try to figure out over 28 days what techniques and tools could we use to help people build a lasting exercise habit. And um, we also just, I should also say, launched experiments this past fall with Walmart and Penn Medicine and Geisinger Health with the goal of um, nudging people to get flu shots. So we, we've done these mega studies a number of times now. A key learning is that um, often what we predict doesn't hold true. Often the things that rise to the top in these tournaments surprise us. And I think that just speaks to how important it actually is to do these mega studies. We thought, you know, this is just efficiency and, uh, and let's like get a lot of people with different kinds of ideas together talking to each other by letting them each run a study in isolation that they can publish in their preferred journal. But all pulled together. So there will be some cross pollination. We'll get to see how that insights from economics compare to the insights from psychology. And instead, what I think we've discovered is um, that's all true. But maybe the the biggest uh, um, advance is that we're publishing null results. Uh, we're, we're making it easy to do that because we can publish a big you know, paper with everything that worked and everything that didn't. Um, we're seeing a lot of things that don't work that you would have expected to work and the top performing things often aren't what we thought they would be. So there, there's a lot of value in that, I think. Um, in in gyms, we learned just how hard it is with very small incentives to change behavior in a lasting way. The average 
cost of our program was something like 75 cents a person. And most of the things we tested didn't last after we ended the experiment that for so for 28 days, we were like texting people and giving them micro rewards, something like 21 cents a gym visit. And we tried all different framings. And our best performer increased gym attendance by about 30%. So that's good at 75 cents a person. um, And for about a month, but durability was a real challenge. And I think one of the things that taught me is that we should probably not be ending treatments that are low cost, but rather thinking about ways to build sustainable strategies for behavior change and not expecting that we can sort of give people one dose and then magically step out of out of the way and think things will just last. And um, doctors don't do that, right? One of my one of my close colleagues, Kevin Volpe, when I was talking to him about these results, pointed out to me, like, when we determine that somebody needs medicine, say for diabetes, we don't give it to them for a month and expect them to be cured and then like stop. A lot of things are chronic. And so we treat them chronically. And a lot of things about behavior change are chronic, the challenges that get in the way, they don't just magically disappear after a month. So the idea that we should be able to develop strategies that will help people forever, uh, if we just give them a limited time exposure to them is probably pretty silly. So I would say is a really big insight, though there are many more sort of specific behavioral science strategies we've studied and seen work. And I'm happy to talk more about those. Like a meta insight uh, is these mega studies have huge value because they reveal what doesn't work as well as what does. And a lot of things we think will work don't. And another meta insight is behavior change requires often, I think lasting behavior change requires lasting intervention as opposed to sort of a quick one and done. Okay, thanks a lot. But now we would like to speak about a big event, which is your new book. Scott? Yes, we're really excited to hear about your book. Uh, I know it's coming out in May, and it's called How to Change the Science uh, from get, from, of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. So could you just start by telling us why you decided to write the book, some of the motivation behind it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've honestly, we've sort of talked about the motivation already because it really came from uh, starting this initiative with Angela and realizing that um, the thing I was most passionate about was figuring out what creates change and what creates lasting change that I wanted to devote the rest of my career to that um, with a single-minded purpose and um, realizing that not only was I interested in that for myself, but but a big part of the reason I cared was because I saw the huge positive impact it could have on society. And to have that impact, I felt like I needed to not only invest in the research and in learning the research, but in communicating about it so that um, a, a wide audience could benefit from these insights. So uh, there was a, there was a moment, I'd say, in my career when I realized like this could really help people. And then that moment was when I saw this graph that was published in, I think, the New England Journal of Medicine in 2007, but I hadn't seen it in 2007. And what it does is it breaks down the fraction of premature deaths in the U.S. that are a result of different causes from, you know, accidents to environment to genetics to uh, our behaviors. And I was startled to discover that 40% of premature deaths are a result of behaviors we could change. So things like smoking, um, not getting adequate exercise, eating unhealthy foods, drinking, you know, not buckling your seatbelt, not going to the doctor for preventative screenings, all of those things just add up enormously. 
And even though I haven't seen the same graph in other settings, it's sort of obvious if they accumulate in health, uh, we know that that there's accumulation of those small poor decisions in other settings too from your your choices about whether to study or procrastinate um, to your choices about you know, whether to set a little aside for the future or spend. And I just felt like, wow, okay, these are big problems. It really matters. And the book is my attempt to bring the best science that can help help us be more productive, help us achieve our goals, help us be healthier, um, help us live more fulfilling lives, frankly. Uh, We know a lot about it. And I wanted to synthesize that. And it's the work of the Behavior Change for Good Initiative, too. We're trying to advance that science and bring the best thinkers together so they cross-pollinate. But the book is also towards that purpose. And it taught me a lot because I got to really dive deep into the literatures, um, some of which I only knew superficially in order to try to create that. But I've tried to do it in a way that's really accessible because my goal is to bring it to as many people as possible. So it's filled with stories, just like the podcast. It's not written in an academic way, though I do hope readers will come away appreciating that academia is full of fun insights. And there are adventure stories there, too. Some of the adventures are about the discovery of of the things that work. That's that's great. Um, One thing I was hoping you could dive into a little bit for us or share is um, the idea of the human impulses that, that often sabotage our attempts to make positive change in our lives. Can you speak a little bit about some of these impulses or maybe an example or two and and why they make change so difficult for people? Yeah, absolutely. I I think one of the things that's been missing from a lot of the popular writing about how we can achieve our goals more, how we can be more successful, how organizations can help us be more successful um, is that that it's sort of single minded and just giving you strategy after strategy that some scientists has proven can help um, without understanding that these strategies are more or less effective in some circumstances and they solve specific problems. Um, So actually, we talked about temptation bundling. And I think one of the reasons to me that stands out as an important study in my career is that it helped me solidify this insight that in order to solve a problem, you have to understand what's standing in your way. And in the case of temptation bundling, I knew it was temptation. I wasn't tempted to go to the gym. I was tempted to sit on the couch. And so um, the best solution was to tackle temptation head on and make exercise into something I looked forward to so I didn't put it off indefinitely, um, make it tempting. And so that's sort of like the at the heart of the book is instead of just listing solutions to behavior change, um, recognizing it depends on the problem you're solving, what will be most effective. So I break the book. Each chapter is is based on a different challenge that research has shown can stand in the way of achieving our goals from the challenge of motivating ourselves to get started to, um, you know, confidence or uh, peer effects or conformity. Your your peers may be pushing in the wrong direction to impulsivity, um, to forgetting, which, by the way, I think is is an underappreciated challenge uh, and, and then talks through how different insights from science can solve each of those problems. So um, I organized it that way because I think, I, I know, in fact, from my own research experience that when we uh, understand what's standing in our way, we can much more effectively develop strategies and solutions that will help uh, achieve success. Sure. No, that, that makes a ton of sense. And you mentioned uh, peers, and, and I was interested in hearing a little bit more about the, that larger issue of how we can help other people or perhaps other people can help us. 
Are there some strategies tied to interpersonal or peer interaction that, that you could share? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, the book talks about, I think, two big categories of strategy. Um, one is, you know, popularized by the amazing scientist who's a member of our team, um, Bob Cialdini, who's written about the power of social norms and how um, seeing what other people are doing shapes our behavior and, and being around other people. We tend to look at what they're doing and think, you know, should I try to do that too? I want to fit in and, and this must be the smart thing to do. So we emulate our peers. And that suggests that um, it's really important, one, to communicate successfully about, you know, what's uh, what other people are doing when that's a desirable behavior. When we sort of send the message, I'm thinking a lot right now about, for instance, vaccines and working on vaccines and adoption. Um, it's really helpful to say, you know, most people are really excited to get the vaccine. Most people are rushing to get the vaccine and the numbers keep going up because we, we hear that and we think, oh, this must be like kind of a normal thing to do. Other people are doing it. My friends are doing it. If we see people wearing the I got vaccinated sticker who are in our community, we think this isn't scary. This is normal. And um, so so we can help other people both by communicating about social norms that are positive. Um, and then another another insight that actually comes from research I did with Wharton doctoral student Katie Mayer and Angela Duckworth is that we don't always get as much insight out of our peers as we could if we were more proactive and deliberate about it. So we ran um, studies on what we call copy and paste nudges, um, encouraging people to actually look to their peers who are succeeding on a goal they're trying to achieve and very deliberately try to copy whatever strategy seems to be working for their peers and see if they can use it too. Um, and people do this somewhat naturally. That's sort of what peer effects are. But what we found is that just encouraging them to do it deliberately adds value as well, which suggests that we're not getting as much out of peer effects as we could if we were more conscious and deliberate about using them. Um, so those are two. And then the final thing I want to say is accountability is a way we can help peers a lot. So when, um, when, when we let our peers use us as uh, as someone who will hold them accountable, we say, you know, I'm 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 here and I'm happy to be um, someone who holds you accountable. That can be effective. So one study, my collaborators and I ran. Um, Rachel Gershorn was the lead on this project. We found that if you have a, a gym buddy who you are paid to exercise with, and you can earn a dollar for going to the gym at the same time as that other person, um, that actually helps motivate you to exercise more than if you are paid just a dollar to exercise anytime. And so is your gym buddy. And that's counterintuitive because actually normally incentives work best when they're more direct. It's like easier to earn a dollar for just going to the gym anytime than if you go with someone else. But we see about a 30% increase in the effectiveness of the same incentive when it's tied to going with a friend. And part of what's going on there is that that friend is holding you accountable. Part of it is also they're making the exercise more fun, by the way. Uh, so going back to the... to. To what we talked about earlier, it's really important to make um, things that we might dread into things that we'll actually enjoy and be tempted to do. But there's also an, accountabil an accountability element. And um, so in, in different ways, we can hold people accountable. That can be really effective as long, you know, we don't want to do it in a, a nasty way. But when we can be there for them and help them feel like um, they have a supporter and someone looking out for them and someone who's going to help make them feel guilty if they don't achieve their goals, that can be valuable, too. One other question, Katie, is um, whether some of the insights um, or findings from the Behavior Change for Good initiative have ended up in the new book. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm so glad you asked that because one of one of the things that's been most fun in writing the book was was synthesizing some of the new learnings from the Behavior Change for Good Initiative work. Um, one study I particularly love was led by Lauren Eskris Winkler, who is uh, about to join the faculty at the Kellogg School of Management, and had this insight. She had this insight that uh, we're constantly giving other people advice about how to achieve their goals, but that can actually maybe be demotivating if you're on the receiving end because it makes you feel like, gosh, I don't really, I must not really know what I'm doing. People don't believe in me that I have it in myself. And and she realized that when we give advice, on the other hand, when we're asked for advice, that is, and then we get to give it, um, that can help us because uh, giving advice makes you feel um, knowledgeable. You've been asked and someone believes in you that you have some knowledge to add. And it also gets you to sort of dredge up insights you have about yourself that are very personal that might be helpful to you. And then you might feel hypocritical if you don't put them to good use after you've you've offered that advice. So um, she led an experiment that we ran where some students, some high school students were randomly assigned to be asked to give study advice to their their younger peers and other students weren't. Um, and the ones who were in our treatment group, they were just prompted to answer a series of questions on an online form. It took about eight minutes about, you know, where are good places to study? You know, how do you get yourself motivated to study? Um, they did this at the beginning of the second semester or the third quarter of the academic year. And then we left them alone and we looked to see how their GPAs um, changed. And what we found is that the students who had been prompted to just spend a few minutes giving advice on how to improve their uh, other people could improve their study habits, their GPA in the class they had told us they most wanted to improve in had gone up significantly. It's not a huge effect. It's like a believable effect. It went up um, about one point on a hundred point scale, um, but it's significant and and basically free. And they'd also improved in math, which is this, the other subject we said in advance, we pre-committed to looking at those two outcomes, because that was a subject most kids said they wanted to improve in. Um, and again, you know, a small but significant effect on their grades in math. So I think this is a really interesting and important insight that um, when we are in the position of advice givers, it boosts our confidence, and it helps us dredge up insights about how to improve we might not otherwise find. And, and it helps us uh, feel committed to actually trying to make those changes in our own lives. So I think there's a lot more value in mentoring instead of just being mentored than we may appreciate. It suggests that, you know, if there's an employee who's struggling, rather than just pummeling them with advice, can you find ways that they actually can be put in the position of advice giver and, and build their confidence and their insights about what works? Uh, you can see why organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous, for instance, not only give new members a mentor, but also uh, put former, you know, people who've gone through the program, they put them in the position of a mentor that helps the mentor too. Um, so I think, I think there's a lot that organizations can learn from that research about how valuable mentoring programs are and that they serve two purposes, not just one. 
maybe Cathy, I could uh, ask a final question regarding your book, uh, which is about change within organization, because your book is also about uh, not only individual change, but changing and helping organization uh, to make the change which are needed. Do you have any specific recommendation to help leaders and managers to be successful at implementing change within organization? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, let's see. I have two suggestions. One, well, first, I hope they'll read my book because uh, really one of the key audiences is managers who are thinking about how to help the people they they manage change. Um, a, a lot of almost all of the research that I present is about um, strategies and tools that are implemented in organizations to help change the behavior of individuals for the better uh, and how how well they can work in different situations. Um, a, a key takeaway is it depends on what you're up against. So are people in your organization not achieving their goals because, um, because you know, the, the temptation to procrastinate is too great? Or is it because um, they just need help getting started or they lack the confidence to achieve or um, they don't have the mentors around them um, that they need? So what's the barrier? What's holding them back? And once you recognize that, the tools are different. You want to use a tool that's well suited to um, to the problem. I can give you uh, an example. Um, one challenge that I talked about with Google that started a whole research stream for me was the challenge of figuring out when to encourage employees to make change, when to get them to sign up for development programs, when to encourage them to start saving more for retirement or to, to invest in their health. And um, it wasn't clear to leaders at Google when they should be nudging those changes. And I ended up doing a whole lot of research with Heng Chen Dai and, and Jason Reese to try to figure out when are people most motivated to change. And we identified fresh start moments, moments that feel like the beginning of a new era in our lives as moments when people are particularly open to change. And, and you probably know about New Year's resolutions and it, and we showed it's much broader than that. So the beginning of a new week, um, the start of a new month, uh, the celebration of a birthday, uh, even the beginning of spring when it's flagged for you. These are moments that feel like new beginnings when people are more open to tackling change. And so uh, that's another insight that I hope organizational leaders will take away a specific one, that there are moments when we're most open to change. And that's when we can act and give people the tools that will help. Um, but we didn't want to let you go without asking you at least the one general question about the COVID crisis and, and your, your thoughts on behavioral science and, and perhaps what you've been thinking about during this, this crisis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think this crisis has revealed how how much behavioral science matters in case we didn't already know, because so um, so many of the outcomes that have been negative have been the result of of behaviors that weren't changed successfully. If we could have gotten everybody to basically just stand alone in a bubble for 14 days, this thing would have ended uh, in 14 days, in fact. But uh, but that's impossible. And and we've seen a lot of failures to, to nudge behavior change that would have been really productive and save jobs and lives and livelihoods. Um, I think it's it's drawn renewed attention to the power of the field. My team at Behavior Change for Good Initiative tried to bite off a small piece of the problem and, and see if we could make a contribution there, which was uh, we recognized that there was a lot of effort going into develop vaccines that would likely 
help us end this pandemic, that there was a lot of effort going into figuring out the supply chain side, but there wasn't a lot of effort, though there was the development and the supply chain, there wasn't a lot of effort going into figuring out, well, how will we make sure people actually show up and take the vaccines? And that's a behavioral problem. So we partnered with uh, Walmart and their pharmacy team and also with Penn Medicine and Geisinger, two local health groups to run mega studies in the fall of 2020, um, testing different messages to nudge people towards getting flu shots um, with the hope that we could develop messages that would really be portable, that were more about closing what I call the action intention gap, where people probably were open to getting the shot, but might not choose to actually follow through because it's a little bit of a hassle or they have a little anxiety about it. They're not sure it's right for them. So we tested messages that were not specific to the flu, but messages about, you know, oh, uh, lots of other people are doing this or, you know, beat this neighboring community or we've got a vaccine reserved for you. Uh, it's it's waiting for you. Come and get it. And we tested what was most effective and found across the board messaging, encouraging people to get a vaccine by saying, hey, it's it's literally reserved for you. It's basically got your name on it. it was incredibly effective. It was the most effective message we tested across all three sites. Um leverages the endowment effect. You feel like it belongs to you once you've said it's got your name on it. And uh, the moment we're, we're, we're recording this in March, at this moment, there's not enough vaccine that that's really the problem of you know convincing people there's one with your name on it, you should get it. But, but come May, June, July, things are going to change a lot. And we hope that that insight will be really helpful. Um, we saw that it could increase take up of a flu vaccine in a doctor's office by 11%. Um, and it's really at no no added cost, so or almost no cost. The cost of sending a text message, which is a couple of pennies, and it could save lives. So we're really proud of that work and excited to see it put into practice. Great, thanks so much for sharing that. That, that is really that is really wonderful to hear. Um, I know we're at the end of our time, so I think on behalf of Eric and, and myself, we really wanted to thank you on behalf of our listeners as well uh, for joining us today. And I guess we just want to end by seeing, is there anything you'd like to leave with our listeners? Uh, maybe some direction in terms of where they can find out more about the book, um, about the newsletter, about podcasts, there's so much. Yeah. Thank, well, thank you for asking. Um, first, thank you so much for having me. This was tremendously fun. And I'm such an admirer of the work you both do. And it's it's just such a treat to get to talk to you. So thank you for having me. Um, and then second on the question of where to learn more, uh, I try to keep a website up to date, www.katymilkman.com, which has, you know, information about the book on it and information about the podcast. You can download episodes um, there, information about how to sign up for my newsletter, Milkman Delivers, which uh, I know it's sort of a silly name, but my former students insisted that I had to go with it. I, I mentioned it as a joke and then they said, no, it has to be that. Uh, so yeah, you can find out about all that on my website and um, and you can also find out about the Behavior Change for Good initiative and, and our seminars and so on at, uh, at the Behavior Change for Good initiative website at the University of Pennsylvania. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about all this. Thank you for the work you do to spread the love for behavioral science and help organizations use these insights to make work better. And, um, and I look forward to the time we can be together in person next. We do as well. Thank you so much, Katie. Thanks, Katie. It was a really a great conversation. Thanks a lot. And take care. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.